Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Mark Dunley takes us to the state capitol, covering issues of the Renewable Heat Now campaign and parole reforms. Then, Willie Terry brings us excerpts of guest speaker Dr. Jennifer Burns, professor of Africana Studies at UAlbany, from the League of Women Voters Rensselaer County Annual Winter Meeting. Later on, Elizabeth E.P. Press speaks with Joseph's House and Shelter Executive Director Amy LaFountain about her work providing support services to homeless and formerly homeless people. After that, Andrea Cunliffe speaks with Carl J. Sprague, who works on whose work on well-known films is being exhibited in Setting the Stage at Opalka Gallery. And finally, DIY Arts and Culture Space Studio Troy is celebrating one year this Saturday, and Carolyn Tennant brings us the story. But first, here are the headlines. The State Department of Environmental Conservation has issued a new round of violation notices against the Norlite Hazardous Waste and Aggregate Production Facility in Cohoes. The new round of violations occurred even though Norlite has been in court being sued by DEC, the state attorney general, and lights out Norlite for being a public nuisance starting with their silica dust emissions. Channel 10 has reported that two Albany police officers are under investigation for recent separate incidents related to alleged DWI and gun discharge. The Times Union reports that a federal district district court has approved a five six point sorry has approved a six point five million dollar settlement in a class action lawsuit several Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute students filed against the school nearly four years ago over remote classes. RPI will pay several hundred dollars to students who were enrolled in the spring 2020 semester. The court rejected RPI's claims that its written curriculum statements were merely aspirational. The Times New reports that Saratoga County employees have rejected the latest proposed contract negotiated with the union leadership at CSEA. Members said that the proposed wages are too low, especially in light of inflation, and the contributions to the health insurance plan are too high. CSEA responded that, quote, crafting a contract that entices prospective employees to public service positions while simultaneously recognizing and rewarding committed long-term employees is a balancing act, end quote. The State Cannabis Control Board, building upon its reputation as very slow moving, canceled its January monthly meeting late Tuesday, less than 17 hours before it was scheduled. Issuing on, issues on the agenda included finally adopting regulations to implement the law's provisions, legalizing homegrown, allow, um, allowing individuals to grow a limited number of marijuana plants for personal use. The board was also slated to approve a slew of retail license applications. News 10 reports that Troy's mayor and Republican Party are interested in a bipartisan affordable housing plan. Responding to proposals advanced by the city council majority party, the Democrats. The Democrats called for a housing task force to address Troy's aging properties, rising rents, and barriers to home ownership. They are seeking funds for vacancy study for a vacancy study to create a comprehensive strategic housing action plan with strong community input. 
Albany's annual Wine and Dine for the Arts Festival, which started on Thursday, January 25th, is honoring the recently deceased county legislator Matthew Peter, who has been a major patron of the arts. The festival raises money for the arts while honoring local arts leaders. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Mark Dunley was on the scene at the state capitol on Tuesday and brings us this coverage. Tuesday, January 23rd, was a busy day at the state capitol. Hudson Mohawk Magazine covered events with the Renewable Heat Now campaign, parole reform, and the New York Immigration Coalition. For part one, we start off with Better Broad of New Yorkers for Clean Power and Laura Schindel of Food and Water Watch. Um, scheduled also initially at the same time, we will then also hear about elder parole and other parole reforms. Abroad. I'm the campaign director of New Yorkers for Clean Power and the director of advocacy and organizing at the Association for Energy Affordability. I'm here with my dear colleague, Laura. Please. I'm Laura Schindel. I'm a senior organizer with Food and Water Watch. We have an amazing turnout. Over 300 people from across the state came here to rally for New York. Governor Hochul included key parts of the New York Heat Act in her executive budget. This is a huge deal. Governor Hochul has signaled that she's ready to take the next big step on climate. And she signaled that she's committed to delivering relief to New Yorkers across the state who are struggling to pay rising energy bills and who are suffering through fossil fuel fueled extreme weather. Now we need Speaker Hasty to make the same commitment and put the Heat Act in the one house budget. Right. Any more time. We have to transition now off of this outdated, dangerous, toxic, fracked gas system that is driving climate change. <laughs> we have suffered through poisonous air through orange skies, yes. through smoky air, yes. through unhealthy conditions, through floods, through record-breaking heat waves. What more do we have to witness until we get off this dangerous system and transition to clean energy and clean heat now? Yes. What's worse is we are being asked to keep dumping billions and billions of dollars into this outdated system. We're pouring this money into the fracked gas system, which leads to utilities across the state raising rates for people who can't afford it. It's unacceptable. Yes. Some New Yorkers are going to see their energy bills go up by $75 a month. That ain't right. We have to get off the fracked gas system as quickly as possible, and we need to do it now. The New York Heat Act is the solution we need. It will kickstart our transition off of fracked gas and enable gas providers to invest in renewable heating instead. It will also end 
the $200 million in subsidies that we are paying every year to expanding the fracked gas system. Because by law, by law, every house has to get connected to the gas system for free if it is near a gas main. And most importantly, it will get rid of the obligation to serve. Right now, right now, every customer that asks for gas, gas must get connected to gas by law to the fracked gas system. Getting rid of this gas guzzling system will be a huge boost to our transition to clean energy. All of this New York Heat Act will reduce future gas rate hikes well, like the ones pummeling New Yorkers right now across the state. Governor Hochul included all of this in her executive budget. However, he left out one key part, additional protections for low-income families that are struggling to pay their energy bills every month. This is crucial. New York Heat Act utility bills will be limited to 6% of a family's income. This would save families up to $75 a month on their energy. We can't afford to stay on fracked gas. We need the legislature. We need Speaker Hasty to follow Governor Hochul's lead and put the Heat Act in the budget. Our coverage of parole reform starts with Senator Brad Hoyman Siegel, lead sponsor of Elder Parole, followed by Assemblymember Michelle Solages, who is head of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, and then Brian Hill, a paralegal with legal aid in Rochester, who spent much of his life in prison. It is past time that we allow, we're just allowing, older incarcerated individuals to have an opportunity before a parole board. And as Senator Salazar, our champion on the Corrections Committee said, it's not about automatic release, it's about having the chance at parole, right? If you're 55 years or older and have served at least 15 years, we just want you to have the opportunity to go before the parole board. Isn't that fair? Yes. Isn't that just? Yes. And I was speaking to Mr. Steele over here, and he said to me, and he's absolutely right, that it is unconscionable that these individuals don't have a shot at parole now, automatically. And it's unconscionable what we're doing by keeping them behind bars, separated from our community. And it is harmful to our local economy that we can't return these men and women to become real activated members of their local community to support their families and their small businesses and their community organizations. So the BPH caucus released their budget priorities, a people's agenda, and the tagline for this year is a demand for justice. So what do we want? Justice! And we particularly want parole justice. Because we know that the war on drugs was really a war on people, and that black and brown communities were at the brunt end, and we today are still suffering from the effects of mass incarceration. That ain't right! That's why we need to ensure that our elders are given dignity and given an opportunity to stand before the parole board. That's all we're asking. And so we stand here united as the caucus members, 77 of us, 
demanding that this bill come to the floor. And that we, we want it now because we cannot wait. We need to bring dignity to our communities. You say that you're in line, you want health equity, you want equality for all, you want to make sure that black and brown folks are given and closing, the disparity gaps are closing. So show us that. That's right. Don't talk about it, be about it. Ron Bell, I'm a paralegal at the Legal Aid Society Decarceration Project. I'm also 1199 SEIU Union Delegate. Um, I served 18 years in nine months of prison. I went, I went to six parole boards. My, my first initial three parole boards, I was denied without the full record. They didn't have my sentencing minutes. So I was denied six years without them even having the complete record. So what type of consideration is that? When I was released, like I was, I feel like I was ready. I was ready to go go home many years prior to being released, um, yeah. even before my minimum sentence. Right. But I was released a day before my 39th birthday in 2011. When I was released, I had spent 50% of my life in prison, and I had to. I came home with nothing. I had to figure out how to rebuild my life, and that was the hardest thing in the world to to not go back to like negative things and to not give up. While I was doing the time when I had year five, year 10, year 12 in, I didn't know whether I was going to ever have, you know, be able to make a better life for myself, whether I was going to have a family, whether I was going to even make it through my incarceration. When I came home, I was, I was luckily able to have a few friends from childhood that put resources in my hand, that gave me a support system. Um, a lot of us don't have that. So that was that was that helped me. I went to I, I got my, my my bachelor's degree, and you know I started yes, a couple businesses, yes. and I was able to work at Legal Aid as a paralegal. Right. Um, I taught myself law in prison. I helped guys get out. The only reason I was able to to have success and to successfully reintegrate in society is because I I planned this. Those same people that are not getting fair opportunity at the parole board they're just like me i'm no different than them and and if they're given the opportunity they will have success too and they come from our communities black and brown communities and we want them back in our communities because we feel that they're assets we're asking for the legislators to pass elder parole and fair and timely parole so that so that black and brown people that have been incarcerated for for many years can get an opportunity to come home to their communities thank you this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was part one of Mark Dunley's coverage. Tune in next time for more, which will include coverage of immigration rights. And on Saturday, January 21st, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended the League of Women Voters Rensselaer County Annual Winter Meeting at the Hart Cluett House in Troy with Speaker Dr. Jennifer Burns, professor of Africana Studies at the University of Albany, and Willie plays a recorded excerpt from her presentation. Um, and then we have the Rensselaer County Women's Suffrage Association, which is the Troy kind of headquarters in 1905, to get to how black women become a part of the story in Troy. Because black women are organizing and they are creating organizations at the same time as black men here have the Republican clubs and the Democratic clubs. And as white women are trying to deal with, um, one, some of them their own racial isms, but also um, how some of them are trying to cross the racial barrier 
there are a few connections that become important. And then they continue to kind of touch down in Troy, or people from Troy go out to those other locations to make these interracial connections. Um, black women, who had formed the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, which is the umbrella unit that is formed prior to the NAACP being organized. So it was a decade before the NAACP becomes a formal organization. Black women in Boston, some in New York, others in DC, had women's clubs formalized in 1908. They created the Northeastern Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. That was stationed or headquarters in New York City. And the Equal Suffrage League of Brooklyn, which later is sometimes called the Colored Women's Equal Suffrage League. And that one was established in the 1890s by Henry Hyde Barnett's daughter. So he's got a little touch back there. He was no longer here. He's in DC and then he's in Liberia and he's everywhere else. He's fancy. <laughs> Fabulous, right? But his daughter will establish that club. And it was focused on women getting education, knowing politics and understanding politics, and then becoming engaged in political organizing so that women can get the right to vote. She is important because it's a downstate connection. Sojourner Truth, who we're all familiar with, mm -hmm. had been still crisscrossing the state. She relocates to Michigan, where she's going to live. She will, be, will remain in connection with many of the black women in Rochester, in Buffalo, um, during this time period running up to 1900. She will also attend in 1878 the National Women's Suffrage um, Association Convention that is in Rochester. And she will remain connected to Susan B. Anthony. And in a lot of the books about Susan B. Anthony, they discuss her struggle, we'll say, with race. Um, and it is, the issue is very much like the 1960s black feminist women's movement issue, where white women at the time didn't necessarily have to concern themselves with direct threats that were created by race, whereas black women did, right? They had to worry about their husbands who were going to political conventions that could be lynched or accused, right, of looking at white women and then be lynched and things like that. So for the black women, there was always this whole communal collective that they wanted as part of their political advocacy and they wanted included in the white women's suffrage movement. And Susan B. Anthony was a person who was kind of saying, I don't, I don't want that intersectional component. She did stay friends with Sojourner Truth. She and others um, also remained friends with Louisa Jacobs. And if you're a history nerd, like I am, <laughs> I know, um, Louisa Jacobs is Harriet Jacobs' daughter. Harriet Jacobs is the one who wrote Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. After, right. So her daughter, Lisa Jacobs, is in Rochester, which is a thriving black community for the women's organizations. The Rochester community is led by Hester C. Jeffrey. Hester C. Jeffrey is also friends with Susan B. Anthony. So there's a, a connection there. Hester, B. Jeff, or Hester C. Jeffrey will actually come to Troy a little bit after 19... 02, um, really looks like 1902, 1903, and she will help establish 
a women's organization that connects to young girls' politics and working on getting them um, almost like STEM education mm -hmm. so that it could help integrate RIT. Mm -hmm. right? So there's kind of a, a circular connection there. Um, Charlotte Ray, who's the daughter of Charles B. Ray, who was heavily involved with the black men and the black community here in Detroit before the Civil War, all of the politics and the agitation even for many years after the Civil War. His daughter will attend the National Suffrage Association in New York City in 1879, their annual convention. She then will be rubbing shoulders with and speaking with Susan B. Anthony. The same happens in 1890. Um, Mary Shad Carey, whose husband dies in the Civil War, she had moved to Canada, but she had come through Troy and had many connections here um, with different people before the Civil War. After she comes back to the States and she lives in D.C., when she's in D.C., she's going to help establish a connection between the black women in D.C. and the National Women's Suffrage Association. She will then establish or found the Colored Women's Progressive Franchise Association, which will then work with the Brooklynites and the Garnett, uh, Sarah Garnett, and then also um, Hester Jeffrey in Rochester, and they're passing through Troy. I've not been able to find any black women in Troy who actually hold conventions themselves. But I do believe, if I keep digging in the right places, okay, I will find them through different letters and other things, especially in DC, especially through the Women's Colored Club Movement, um, and in Brooklyn and in Rochester. Now, as I wrap this up, I want to try to bring these things together a little bit. Because the women in Troy reach out. I have a couple of newspaper articles where they reach out to black men. Um, and when I say women, I mean the white women, because it's largely all white women that I can find doing this, are reaching out to black men um, for their support after 1900. And it appears that they begin to gain support, but not in a public way. So for example, um, in 1915, which is when the women's suffrage referendum or amendment goes before the state legislature, it had to have two successive um, approvals mm -hmm. in the state conventions, or the state legislative conventions mm -hmm. to be able to do so. Um, just prior to that, what you see is parades and motorcades in Troy. Um, and in the descriptions of them, you have black men in the crowd who are waving and cheering. So I don't have anybody say, yay, I'd be there. But when people notice and really detail, it says something, right, that they're out for the cause. Um, in 1915, when the referendum goes before the New York stale, State male voters, <laughs> right? It's, when that happens, it fails. <laughs> but women redouble their effort. They put a great campaign together. One of them I find the most interesting is the mail to soldiers, to make soldiers who are overseas and are getting towards World War One um, have their ballots. And are able to mail them. It's a soldiers' campaign. It pays off here in Rensselaer County. 
over, um, and it doesn't have like overwhelmingly, but it does contribute to how in 1915 um, the, the, the numbers um, kind of lay out. I'm sorry, not 1917, how the numbers kind of lay out. In 1917, when the referendum goes before the public again, it passed. <laughs> Um, and that means, of course, it passes in New York. When it does pass, it makes New York the 14th state to grant women the right to vote. 14. 14. Okay. Um, it took 69 years, <laughs> but not 70. What made it pass, though, was not a major change in the male approval here mm -hmm. in Winslow County. What made it change was the shift um, in New York City and the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. um, that still that meant that we needed a 19th Amendment, and so that required more work again at the national level in order to make that happen. By 1919, when the amendment passed, both houses had gone to Congress, it needed to be ratified. 36 states ratified it in August 1919. The amendment went into effect in 1920. And then the next year, Carrie Chapman Cap, who had been in Troy a number of different times because the women here had held um, the annual suffrage, women's suffrage conventions, she changed the name of the National League of Women Voters and establishes then what is formally identified as the League of Women Voters. Um, so that was a lot of information. That was Dr. Jennifer Burns, guest speaker at the League of Women Voters Rensselaer County annual winter meeting, speaking um, and recorded by Willie Terry. Dr. Jennifer Burns is a professor of Africana Studies at the University of Albany. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. January started with several news stories in Troy related to housing and the unhoused. Elizabeth E.P. Press spoke with Joseph's House and Shelter's Executive Director Amy LaFountain about her work providing support services to homeless and formerly homeless people. Today we are talking housing with Amy LaFountain. She is the new Executive Director of Joseph's House and Shelter, Amy has been working at Joseph House for almost 18 years now, and prior to being executive director, served as the director of supported housing. Amy, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and congratulations on almost serving a year as the new executive director of Joseph's House and Shelter. Thank you so much, EP. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, talking about the services we provide, our shelter, housing, and all the services in between. Great. Well, thanks for taking this time. You know, we've interviewed your predecessor, Kevin O'Connor, who is the former executive director for, you know, a couple decades plus. So we're really excited to 
connect with you and hear about, you know, what are some of your visions, just starting with what does Joseph's house and shelter do? Our mission is something that we talk about all the time. It is what keeps us grounded on a daily basis. And we provide non-judgmental services to end homelessness. It's everything around that that we do because non-judgmental services to end homelessness means basic needs like food and it means shelter. It means housing. It means a conversation. It means anything that the person that we're working with wants and needs. And Amy, on average, how many folks does Joseph House and Shelter serve in a year? Does it vary between seasons? It varies. But most recently, upwards to 2,900 people per year. And, and this is encompassing our programs within Troy and our newer programs within Albany that we just went into in around 2018. What are your summer like regular challenges? What are some sort of new challenges that Joseph's House and Shelter is tackling now? The systems around all of uh, mental health services, um, substance use services, the criminal justice system, they have all changed drastically. The landscape of COVID really changed how the delivery of services is done, the accessibility, as well as who wants to work in this field. And, and it definitely has shifted. And so we are navigating folks who have more acute mental illness and substance use and finding it more challenging to get folks to the services that that they want and need. Could you sure. just go into that a little bit more? Like what is your collaboration like with places that provide some of those services? Sure. Um, we have good partnerships and collaborations with, you know, Rensselaer County Department of Mental Health, Albany County Department of Mental Health, Samaritan Hospital, and believe it or not, the Troy Police Department, the training that they go through for mental health, they are huge advocates for our people. But like Samaritan Hospital, their outpatient clinic, I think, has decreased probably, I think, more than half. But one of the inpatient units is closed. It makes it much more difficult. And they have to triage who they're admitting. Not everybody is able to access those services. We've been hearing a lot about like and covering a lot about how Burdett Birth Center has a plan for closure up at Samaritan, but we haven't heard a lot about some of the other closures or decrease of services. And so now with what you say, are there other places to sort of filter people to or with those services being cut or closed off? Is there no longer as much help in those areas? There isn't, there's, there's, there's not enough anywhere. And Samaritan Hospital closing any service within that hospital is, is significant. It's the main hospital, one, the one, <laughs> like main hospital in Rensselaer County, services need to be accessible to people. And that means being accessible. Grocery stores need to be where people are. And so, and hospitals need to be where people are and the services need to be where people are. And then if they're not, how, how do they get there? any service closing within a local hospital is hugely impactful to the people that we serve. Thank you for going into that a little bit, Amy. You know, we're in winter. We just had this very cold spell, but does that increase the number of people that come and want to use Joseph's house and shelter? Well, I'll, I'll begin by saying that our specifically our emergency shelter 
um, in Troy. They do incredible work. They provide meals, obviously emergency shelter and community for those in need, especially when it's incredibly cold out. Numbers do increase. We'd want to be able to provide more shelter, but then it's always the circle around to what we really need is more affordable housing, more affordable and safe housing for people to access. How do we build more of that? That's a whole separate radio conversation. <laughs> it totally is. And a topic that a lot of people are discussing right now in Troy, especially related to the recent news, which I wanted to touch on a little bit, the efforts to remove an encampment near Prospect Park. The paper said it was, you know, a collaboration between city police, the city, Joseph's house. And I'm wondering what you can tell us. So the place of non-judgment does not only apply to our residents and clients. If there's an opportunity to mitigate harm, provide services or end homelessness for a person or family, Joseph's house and shelter has a responsibility to act. It was important for us to be there. I've also said we may not agree 100% with the process, but it is important to be a part of the process nonetheless so that we can ensure that we are, wherever we are, providing those non-judgmental services. And in this particular case, the land is owned by RPI and action was taken by the city of Troy. We weren't necessarily involved in the exact when and how but we were given the opportunity to speak to whomever was in the encampment and let them know what was happening and to offer shelter. And the mayor's office was great. They were going through with the action that they had decided upon, but really let Joseph's House and Shelter set the tone of the process and making sure that to the best of our ability, it was done in a compassionate way. Not always agreeing with the process, but needing to be a part of it. When you say don't agree, like, do you want to elaborate on that at all? I don't think it's necessarily the place of Joseph's House and Shelter to comment on whether this was right or wrong. And I guess I'm using the, while we may not always be in agreement 100% as a, as a large umbrella, but it is our mission and responsibility to provide, service, provide services and make ourselves available to those in need, which is what we did when we were there. And that is often the case when we are called to situations right? The situation as a whole may not always be something that like, yeah, we agree with this 100%, but we always participate to make sure that we are providing services to some of the communities most vulnerable. It sounded like there weren't that many people actually present that lived there when this encampment was broken up. I'm wondering, has Joseph House been in touch with the folks there? And how are they doing now? This question in particular has been one of the most challenging to navigate because we take client confidentiality very seriously. I don't necessarily want to comment on specific outcomes, but we have an incredible outreach team. Our outreach team does amazing work and they find people and they build relationships with them and they engage with the individuals and let those individuals really decide what route they want to go with the services that we have to offer. And we make sure that those individuals that we are working with, either on the streets or in the shelter, know what's available to them. And we always try to, as we meet people, follow up with them and see how we can you know, work with them along the way and check in with them if they do get to a point of more stability. 
um, you were quoted as saying that, you know, after that day that you were hoping that you would look at lessons learned. And I'm curious, like, what is that? So lessons learned from that experience and lessons learned can also be right. What, what was a good thing is that different entities like the mayor's office, the Troy police department and Joseph's house can work collaboratively in situations that are challenging. One of the biggest lessons learned is the timing of everything. In retrospect, you can always look back, and I don't know how to elaborate on that more, Note a longer notification period, a more lengthy process, maybe asking one more time if it could be later, <laughs> I guess. But I do hope that um, the mayor's office has said that they they are going to sit down and um, schedule a meeting with us to go more in detail of the lessons learned in this process. Is there anything I didn't ask you about the specific incident that you want our audience to know? What has been an interesting part of this experience is people hearing about the encampment and people being curious about what we do and the homeless population in general. So I hope that with people's sort of increased curiosity, that twinge where you're like, I want to do something, follow through on that. Visit josephshousetroy.org. See about volunteering. See about donating. See about how you can do something that is meaningful to you to continue our mission of providing non-judgmental services to end homelessness. That was Elizabeth E.P. Press's conversation with Joseph House and Shelter's Executive Director, Amy LaFountain. Earlier this week, E.P. spoke with Troy DSA, also on housing. You can find that interview on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Carl Sprague, a concept illustrator and scenic design artist, has an exhibition of his work around well-known films showing at the Opalka Gallery. Andrea Cunliffe had the opportunity to speak with the artist. Opalka Gallery, again, brings us a unique exhibition of work for artists in the local community. Carl Sprague, setting the stage, is an exhibition beginning January 24th, running into February 24th. Here he speaks with Andrea Kanla from the Hudson Mohawk magazine about his life as a storyteller through design that began as a boy with his family marionette theater, and then his remarkable career as a designer, which spans small independent films to big budget studio projects for some of Hollywood's most revered directors. I'm really curious how this all came about, how this child grew up. Well, no, this is, a, this is the story. I'm going, to do, I'm going to do a puppet show about this. Oh, you on, are? On Great. And that's one, this Saturday. Saturday, yeah. And so this is basically sets for that. I brought a few other puppets and props and stuff just to show. This is a theater that originally my great-grandfather started. And it's in this tradition of Czech family theater. So it's very small scale. They're just like eight-inch puppets. They're, they're toys. And they're good for kids to play with. And, uh, but it's part of this great Czech puppetry tradition that, you know, is ongoing. Um, your, I, your grandfather was a professional puppeteer. No, prof- he was no? not. He was, he was a textile manufacturer. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And this was where? In-, in northern Bohemia, north of Prague. Right. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. So it, it, it's it's kind of wonderful. It's very, it's very much like around here. It, it could be North Adams, you know. Um, 
So anyway, so uh, the story of this was that he built it for my grandmother and her brother, and I don't know how far it had gotten at that point in the 20s, but then he was going to refurbish it and, and added more scenery and so forth, and he was going to send it down to Slovenia where my my mother and her parents were living and her sister at the time for a Christmas present, but it was the war, and there was no going anywhere. So nothing happened, and then my grandparents emigrated eventually to the United States, and, and my father was driving around, and he was trying to do sort of a romantic end run, escorting my mother and uh, around my grandparents, who really didn't approve of him at all. So he went to go visit my grandmother's parents mm. in, in Bohemia, and they were delighted to see him, and, and they gave him lunch and dinner and so forth, and thought he was charming, and anyway, he got a lot of brownie points and married my mother eventually. But on the way out, my great-grandmother said, you know, but you should take the puppet theater. And so he loaded it into his little VW convertible and managed to sort of like smuggle it out of Czechoslovakia. And, oh my uh, gosh. And then my grandmother spent, oh, I don't know, more than a year fixing up the puppets and restoring all this ancient stuff and making them beautiful clothes. I mean, you can see... Oh my gosh, how many are there? There's a hundred. Oh! But these are just the ones mostly for this show. What um, are they made of? What are, uh, what? Well, the heads are plaster, wood, and feet are plaster also, and then they've got like little wooden bodies and little the, joints and, and stuff like that. And beautifully, the costuming. Yeah, no, she did. She was amazing at that. I mean, Look I, at this guy here. He's wonderful. He's, anyway. he's even got a, a, a watch fob, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, she, she, she really knew what she was doing. And they're only, what, eight, ten inches at the most. Yeah. yeah. <gasps> no, they're little. And, they're, and what's nice is that they're simple, the traditional Czech. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's a, a monster. He's the, the beast. Oh, and look at a dragon. And are you alone presenting this, or do um, you have... I, the thing about it is, like, you can definitely easily handle two of them, two characters on stage, then, like, one sitting down, or, you know, or you need, or two are sitting down, and then you've got two that are standing, or... So, so it's really helpful to have another hand, and then also for, like, changing these sets, because each one of these little t- trays with the scenery, the, uh, it's all very ad-lib, so I do most of the voices. And this is another set. Look at this. This is the dining room. Yeah. Oh, how delightful. Creation of sort of my version of what it was like to go to my to my grandmother's house for Christmas when the puppet theater finally happened. And I was eight years old. Eight years old used to sit on the floor and sit on the chairs and watch. Yeah. Well, and she would take cookies and like you know. Anyway, so it's sort of it's sort of an homage. This is the more like the proscenium of the theater that oh, I've yes. got at home. And, uh, so you started storytelling at eight, at least, yeah, huh? Yeah, we, we was you know we was not very sophisticated storytelling. We did a lot of monster stories. I mean, you know, there was always it was always the same thing. It was like you know a monster comes along and then the prince comes and like you know, you know, slays the monster and it's and. So we did that many of those. But then I got involved in some fancier things. We did a lot of fairy tales. Um, the and Princess and the Princess Pea? Princess and the Pea and Cinderella. And then this was for, uh, um, I did a very Hansel elaborate production Grant? of, no, no, Faust. Oh, oh my. Yes, okay, exactly. well, you grew from, from monsters to Faust. Yes, yes. Not, not a big difference. Yeah. 
But anyway, so that got me interested in theater, and and I did a lot of theater and uh, up through college and um, and but you did film. film. Well, film. I mean, I knew right away did that you? film pays. Oh, I uh, see. Theater does not, or at least not for me. But I did a film major, philosophy minor at Harvard, and I did a bunch of theater productions that I ended up designing, building the sets myself because. Um, finding a Harvard student that knows how to use a hammer is um, a challenge. Uh, exactly. So, but you were mostly so, but I ended directing up, and directing. Yeah, or but writing I, I was or? interested in all of that. But, I, but you know, I ended up um, feeling coming away with it. Like you know, it's like oh gosh, I mean, everyone says they want to direct it. I said, well, you know, if I design, I mean, that seems like it could be a path. And so I did that and uh, pursued it, and I'm still pursuing it. So anyway, so they've got it organized. So this is like a little sidebar with the Nutcracker, uh, which I did with um, the first one. I've, I've done like five Nutcrackers now, but uh, for different organizations. But the first one and the most, the most close to my heart is for the uh, Albany Berkshire Ballet. And uh, when was that done? Uh, Twenty, we had two thousand. I think we. All uh, oh, right. So it's, it's almost twenty-five years ago. That and we, this uh, was your set design. Yeah, these are some for some other organizations, uh, and uh, and then American Repertory Ballet, and then in uh, New Hampshire City Center Ballet that I've worked with a bunch, and and uh, then you know some operas, Berkshire Opera, lots of work for Berkshire Theater Group. You know, I've done, worked for other theaters in New York, and, and I stopped kind of pursuing theater as such because I, I need something that has a paycheck at the end of the week. <laughs> the arts, unfortunately, yeah. are never funded as well no, as they no, should no. be. I, I love it. I've put a lot of effort in, into some of these productions. But, You're uh, really active in the Berkshires, right? Well, you live where there. I live. I mean I, I mean, I live right next to the door to the theaters in, the, you in Stockbridge. You can't keep you out. It's been... It's been, it's been. Um, well, you're, 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 you're based in Troy, right? I mean, yes. so that was Age of Innocence was all in Troy. Oh, yes, of that course. Was probably, what, that was 90 or something. Well, well, yeah, it was like that long ago. Wow, some of those buildings yeah. are still there, you know? Yeah, no, it's, Troy is a film set waiting to happen. I mean, they came back recently for Gilded Age. Yes, they have. And used same, some of the same locations we used for well, Age, Age of Innocence. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, you can't, can't improve on it. So have you been back to Troy? Have you swung through? And... Um, not lately, but, I mean, you know, from time to time. Okay. It's a beautiful place. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Great. Um, Wonderful. So what's in the future for you? I wish I knew. Boston I really no University, idea. you're Bobby doing that course. And then kind of waiting for the phone to ring. But it's January, and it's we just had this, like, you know, practically year-long strike from the Actors and Writers Guild. And it's amazing how... Uh, slow the businesses to kind of reorganize and pick up. I kind of, I figured everyone would be, you know, beavering away, getting things ready for when the strike ended, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to be working that way. So Well, it was strange because we had those years of COVID and then... Well, COVID wasn't so bad for me because I was able to get some jobs working from home, which was terrific. But, uh-huh. uh, uh, but the strike just stopped everything.
You've done quite well. You've done over 40 film and TV. I've done, yeah, if you look on IMDb, you can get, I I don't even remember my resume. This has been Andrea Kanla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, speaking with Carl Sprague at the Opalka Gallery. And Setting the Stage, which is the exhibition at Opalka Gallery, runs from January 23rd to February 24th. And if you enjoyed that conversation around puppets on January 27th, the Very Late Christmas Present Puppet Show um, by Carl Sprague will be taking place at 2 o'clock. Studio Troy, the DIY arts and culture space in downtown Troy, is celebrating one year this Saturday, January 27th at 6 p.m. Starting at 6 p.m., the family-friendly event will feature costume making, mural painting, music, and a dance party. Carolyn Tennant gets the details on the event and the history of the space. I'm joined by Adam Tinkle and Kayla Jolin, who are going to tell us a little bit about Studio Troy, which is having its one-year anniversary this weekend. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, it's great. great Great to be with you. What is Studio Troy? What, what was the inspiration for its creation? What types of needs were you hoping to meet by creating this space? It started out as my personal just studio space. Then I realized that there was a need for community space, event space. And so it sort of transitioned into that. And then I actually ended up moving my personal studio to a new location um, to make room for it to be a gathering space. I moved to Troy, I guess almost three years ago now, and I looked on Craigslist and I found a listing for this space and it was really dilapidated, broken windows, holes punched in walls. It was a mess. And the listing basically said, is someone like looking for a project, super low rent if you'll like fix up this space. And I had a lot of free time on my hands and I was like, all right, I guess this is what I'm going to do. So I rented it and got my friends and uh, community to help. And we just, we ripped out ceilings and we ripped out walls and we painted things. It's still very DIY, still in the process of being renovated. But yeah, the landlord has been super cool with us doing whatever we want with the space. And that's been really nice. So we can kind of paint things however we want sort of thing. We sometimes talk about it as like, what if this is sort of the like the living room for our arts and culture community, um, as opposed to uh, being really locked into the feeling of an exhibition space or a performance space. Were there specific models that you were looking at as far as other places that create that type of environment? I was part of an art collective back in Tucson, Arizona, where I moved to or moved here from. And it was a group of like 17 people and we had an old warehouse and we would do art shows and music shows. It was very DIY event space. So that that was my history. And so that's kind of what I wanted to recreate on like a super, super small scale. In my life as a touring musician, I've had a lot of wonderful chances to play in like DIY venues all around the country. And some of them are have living spaces in them and some of them are are in strange, like uh, converted structures. But I think what the good ones all have in common is like a dedicated community around them and like people who care about making stuff happen and and feel good in a non-commercial way. Um, I've been pretty bowled over by the response. Like we we had a opening party and then immediately people started reaching out asking about having 
concerts in particular there and the reach outs continue. Like, I think there's just a real hunger for people to play in like non-commercial spaces. I think what we bring that's maybe a little distinctive, although by no means unique, is trying to balance like a focus on like lots of hands-on stuff happening in the space too and, and visual art as well as music performances. Um, we're, we're just trying to serve like a whole bunch of different communities in our little space. We've been calling it an incubator space, which feels really good. So people that are starting out with projects can use the space to like have an audience with their projects. So whether it's like a workshop, I know we have a an illustration workshop coming up soon, like a hand illustration one. I'm really excited about that. We've had art classes and open studio time where people can just come use the space to work on their own project. People have donated lots of art supplies, so that's been really helpful. We always have like a shelf full of stuff people can use. Colored City Kink has been doing a residency there where they're hosting queer trans kink workshops, which have been really interesting. So it's like art and art adjacent things, very like generally creative space, I think. Um, yeah. That another one of our members, Natalie Seagriff, is hosting every Monday around the time of the full moon, an evening of music and healing. So it's, yeah, trying to do out of the box stuff, stuff that's not happening in other spaces. You can go to see a three band bill with rock and drums and like pretty loud, or you can go dancing in various places around Troy. But in terms of like multidisciplinary, more cozy, maybe some more experimental stuff, we've been trying to focus on that and it's been great. So we're trying to figure out how it can be a tool for everybody who needs space. So so what have been some of the challenges as far as running the space? Um, I think that the biggest issue for me is how expensive it is to run a space. About a year ago, when we had first gotten the space, didn't realize how expensive heating was going to be. And at this point, I was pretty much paying for the space out of pocket. And we got our first electric bill for heat, and it was like almost $500. And I was like, I don't know if I can keep covering this, you know. And then by the next month, we were like $1,000 deep, and we couldn't pay it. And I was like, all right, what are we going to do? So I did a little GoFundMe, and I was like, if we could just get the heat paid for the next two months until it's warm again, then we can keep this space. And um, 24 hours later, we had $1,000 in our GoFundMe. And we had had this space at this point two or three months. And I was just so blown away. Everybody pitched in a little bit and it was enough to, to cover it. So that's been amazing. And yeah, it, it's expensive to run a space. All of the artists that are members, we all pay for it together collectively. So we just all pitch in. And then anytime we have an event, if it generates income, we get a portion of that to go towards rent and utilities. Um, but yeah, it takes a whole community to fund it. So I think that's the biggest challenge is just keeping the lights on, keeping it heated. Well, you said it's members. How How is that structured? We're still kind of working on that. But right now we have a group of six of us that are collective members. We try and all make the decisions collectively for the space. Everybody pitches in financially to help run it. And we also just started a residency program. So you can incubate your like small business or project there. But yeah, we're still figuring out how that should work. Yeah, we're, we Consensus decision making and meetings and whatever mechanisms work. So Adam, can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved, Where what your background is as far as the studio? Yeah, so I, I've been doing music performance and also video installations around town and around the region for many years. And I did, I had a kind of participatory video installation at an event that was held at No Fun called Club Spa Spa. 
Kayla DM'd me and was like, I would like to have an opening event for this multidisciplinary art space. What do you think about doing some video in, in the vein of video stuff you were doing at No Fun? And I was like, absolutely. And um, I was just so charmed by like the obvious love and care for community and like deep commitment to the certain like non-commercial DIY space holding ethos that I was already seeing happen, you know, even before the very first event, just like in terms of talking about intentions. So the first event was such a massive success with so many people through the door and so much like beautiful hands-on participation in collective art project that we designed really together for a super cozy space that was like kind of infused with video and also soft, immersive design that, that Kayla did. And it's like, this is a great working relationship. This is a great project. This is where I'd like to be putting my spare energy and Put together, I think, four events in a Sound Days series, which, series, which was sound events on Sundays, late early evening shows, um, which I hope to get back to this, this spring. Excited for more of them. So as far as family friendly goes, you have a wonderful event planned this weekend. Can you walk us through what's happening, how families can participate? This Saturday, the 27th. Um, at 6 p.m., we'll open our doors, the studio. The address is 2213 Fifth Avenue. It's on Columbus Square Park. And the event will probably go till 10 or 11. You can come at any point. But if you want to hear the music, I would say get there by 8 p.m. for sure. The idea is we'll open our doors at 6 p.m. We'll have a costume making station so you can come in make an outfit, adorn yourself um, in a celebratory fashion. We will have a mural room where you can participate in painting art on the walls. And then we will have a couple of musical performances later in the evening and then end it all with a dance party. We actually have the the third appearance at our space of a, a singer-songwriter called Oropendola. We are having her um, headline. I'm, I'm just going to warm up the space with a couple of songs before uh, before she plays. Um, and I, I think she's going to facilitate a singing circle for participants, too. So my kid and I are going to do um, a liquid light show for her set, too. It's family friendly. Everyone is welcome. Come ready to dance and laugh and enjoy your community. Well, we're really excited to be celebrating with you. Um, we're looking forward to more activities coming up in the next year. And so best of luck as far as moving forward. And thank you for what you've been doing and the space you've been creating here in Troy. It's really wonderful. Thank you, Kayla and Adam from Studio Troy. This has been Carolyn Tennant for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Oh, that sounds like such a wonderful event. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and we want to thank all the volunteers who made today's possible who's made today's episode possible. This is a team effort. So thank you so much to Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Andrea Cunliffe, Carolyn Tennant. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making all of this worthwhile. <laughs>